Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. A reminder for you, if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a Patreon member. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southern mysteries to join today. Duels. When you hear of them, you may immediately envision two men standing in a field at first light, pistols at the ready to settle a question of honor. The names Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton may come to mind. No one knows the exact date of the first duel, but we know duels of chivalry were fought by knights in the Middle Ages. By the 16th century, the most familiar duel, the Duel of Honor, was on the rise among European nobles. Even the hint of insult from a gentleman's integrity and courage to the honor of a woman could provoke a challenge. As the popularity of the custom increased, so did criticism. In 1614, English philosopher and statesman Francis Bacon argued in favor of abolishing the duel, saying it was a desperate evil that troubled peace and brought about calamity. There were countless efforts to outlaw them, but the practice continued and was brought to the New World. The first recorded duel in America took place in the Massachusetts colony in 1621. Two servants chose daggers and were wounded. The men survived but were reproached and punished for engaging in the duel because it was a practice reserved for gentlemen, not servants. There had been hope that the New World would be free of what was called the sin of the duel, and they would be rare until the Revolutionary War era. Benjamin Franklin spoke out about duels and challenged the reasoning behind them in a 1784 letter asking, how can such miserable sinners as we are entertain so much pride as to conceit that every offense against our imagined honor merits death? The criticism of the practice did little to deter it. Duels were fought in the United States well into the late 19th century. They were most popular in the antebellum South. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Affairs of Honor. Violence is a part of the human condition. From bar fights to war, people have fought to the death to defend beliefs or make others pay for perceived wrongs. But duels were different. They're often referred to as a fight to the death, but for the men who participated in them, they were affairs of honor. They were fights to first blood that carried the risk of death. The first fatal duel in America happened on July 3, 1728. Two gentlemen, Benjamin Woodbridge and Henry Phillips, met on the common in what we now know as Boston. They had been drinking heavily at a nearby tavern when they argued and agreed to settle their differences with swords a little after eight that night. Benjamin Woodbridge was mortally wounded and found dead on the common the following morning. 18th century duels had transitioned from battles of justice to battles of honor among gentlemen 
the world was changing with new opportunities to attain status. You could attain it through land ownership, a military career, and political roles. To be known as an honorable man, a gentleman, you had to be truthful, virtuous, courageous, and well-mannered. This expectation of behavior was meant to keep people in check, remind them that there were consequences for lying and cheating or harassing or questioning the honor of a woman. One slight, one verbal attack or insinuation about you, your family, your very name as a gentleman, and you could be ruined. Now, the majority of duels were between men, but there are accounts of women who preferred to defend their own honor. Lady Almeria Braddock and Mrs. Elphinstone met for tea in Lady Braddock's London home in 1792. The conversation was enjoyable until Mrs. Elphinstone said the following of the lady's appearance. You've been a very beautiful woman. You have a very good autumnal face even now, but you must acknowledge that the lilies and roses are somewhat faded. Forty years ago, I am told, a young fellow could hardly gaze upon you with impunity. Lady Braddock, being a woman of only 30 years, took offense and challenged Mrs. Elphinstone to a duel with pistols in Hyde Park. Mrs. Elphinstone fired first and knocked Lady Braddock's hat to the ground. Not being satisfied with one round, the women took up swords, and Lady Braddock struck her opponent in the arm. Mrs. Elphinstone agreed to a written apology. The women agreed the matter was settled and laid down their weapons. This petticoat duel, as it's known, was said to have ended with a curtsy. At least, that's how the story ended when it was published in Carlton House magazine in 1792. It's the only record of the duel that may or may not have taken place. When it comes to affairs of honor among men, there are records galore. In fact, the practice was so common, the rules of etiquette and culture said a good gentleman was trained to not only ride, shoot, fence, swim, and dance. A good gentleman also trained in the art of the duel. He should be graceful and, if attacked, know how to defend himself and how to defend women from insults. It seems a preposterous idea to us now, but there was a code to ensure all gentlemen knew what was expected and how to maintain honor when challenged. This was outlined in the Irish Code Duello of 1777. 27 formal rules crafted just as the weapon of choice was changing from swords to pistols, which is why you would often find a copy of the code in a gentleman's pistol case. Each region of the world had their own version of Code Duello. The Irish Code was followed in America until 1838, when South Carolina Governor John Wilson wrote the American Code of Honor. Wilson was a lawyer and duelist in the state that had one of the highest numbers of duels in the country. Records of dueling in southern states show the custom was most popular in Virginia, South Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas. 
The code of honor stated, a duel began when one man felt his honor had been insulted by another and challenged the offender. These were not instant meetings in the heat of the moment. An offense would be made and the challenge would be delivered by seconds. Seconds were gentlemen, often friends or relatives of the participants, who negotiated terms of the duel and ensured every aspect followed the code. From locations and weapons to the all-important attempt to make peace and prevent bloodshed. Seconds were to encourage apologies or compromise. If the recipient apologized, the matter was over and honor restored. If he refused and agreed to fight, the recipient would be given first choice of weapons and the time and place. Technically, dueling was illegal in most states, which is why participants had to meet in remote areas, away from witnesses and the law. When participants met, they were encouraged to apologize and walk away. The duel could be stopped up to the very last moment. If they refused and the challenge moved forward, participants had to show unwavering courage or their reputation was ruined. You couldn't show fear and you could not move off your agreed mark. The code stated that when a man stepped off the mark, his opponent second had the right to shoot him on the spot. Most duelists chose pistols because the chance of dying was low. Only 20% of duels ended in fatalities. Weapons often misfired and accuracy could be a challenge. The men stood across from one another, separated by an agreed upon number of paces. Generally, it was 10. One at a time, each man would shoot at his opponent in rounds that continued until the offended man deemed his honor satisfied. Pistols had to be discharged within three seconds. To take aim for a longer period of time was dishonorable. More often than not, there would be one round and the matter was considered over and the duel would end. In the South, duels were often attached to the economy of the region. A gentleman's credit line was his survival in the Southern frontier where plantation owners relied on personal credit until crops could be harvested and sold. Their value was often held in real estate and the enslaved on their plantations. Personal credit was critical and early on in the South, lenders placed a high value on character in determining a man's credit worthiness. An honorable reputation had to be preserved at all cost to ensure loans would be approved. If someone felt you had slighted them and challenged you to a duel, you had to accept, or you could face a devaluation of your assets because you had lost honor and your lack of honor was attached to your lender's name. If you agreed to duel and died, lenders were confident your debt would be paid when your estate was settled. All of this made refusing to accept a duel particularly difficult in the South. In fact, if you refused the challenge, your name was often posted. A statement of your offense, an accusation of your cowardice, would be posted in a public area or printed in a newspaper. 
some men did refuse to accept the challenge and did so in a way that maintained their status and honor. Like the founder and editor of the Arkansas Gazette, William Woodruff publicly decried duels in 1820 and vowed from that moment on his battles would be fought with words or the law, a preemptive strike that protected him. There were exceptions in the Code of Honor that allowed a man to refuse, such as a married man honorably refusing to fight a single man, or a man could refuse based on his religious beliefs. But most men accepted. Tennessean Andrew Jackson would be the first and only president to have killed a man in a duel when he was elected in 1829. As a young attorney, he challenged a lawyer named Charles Dickinson after he called Jackson's wife a bigamist because of a legal mistake in her divorce from her first husband in 1791. Dickinson accepted Jackson's challenge. When the men met with pistols in 1806, Jackson made a choice that cost him honor. Dickinson fired his pistol and slightly wounded Jackson. Jackson's weapon misfired. According to the code, a misfire counted as a shot and the duel should have ended. But Jackson didn't care about technicalities. He immediately fired again and killed Charles Dickinson. From that day forward, many viewed Andrew Jackson's action in this duel as nothing more than murder. Many Southern affairs of honor came down to politics and too much alcohol. This was true of one of the most famous duels in Kentucky. In January 1801, prominent statesman Dr. John Chambers and John Rowan were playing cards in a tavern in Bardstown. The political opposites had been debating the future of the young state for years in editorials and sermons. When they sat across from each other playing cards and drinking, they ended up arguing over which man knew more Latin and Greek. Unable to agree, a challenge was issued and the men chose pistols when they met on February 3rd, 1801. Both men missed on the first round, declared no satisfaction of honor had been met, and reloaded. Rowan's second shot mortally wounded Chambers. Rowan was prosecuted, but never imprisoned. Within a few years, he became the Kentucky Secretary of State, later a senator and Court of Appeals judge. It's said that Rowan carried with him a reminder of that fateful day in 1801, a ring that was said to contain a lock of Dr. Chambers' hair. From the Revolutionary War era until the Civil War, duels were so common the Code of Honor was included in the U.S. Navy's Midshipman's Handbook because officers were often involved in duels and the Navy didn't ban them until 1862. These affairs of honor among men in the U.S. Navy cost many lives. Between 1798 and the Civil War, the Navy lost more officers to duels than combat at sea, including one of our earliest naval heroes, Stephen Decatur. There are 46 communities named for him in the United States. Decatur, Georgia. Decatur, Texas. 
And on June 16, 1820, Decatur, Alabama was named in honor of the American hero who rose to fame for his brave and daring tactics during the Barbary Wars of the early 19th century and the War of 1812. It was a posthumous honor for one of the most famous Americans of this era who died following a duel with Captain James Barron in March 1820. Tension between the men had been brewing since the Chesapeake Leopard Affair of 1807 during the Napoleonic Wars between Great Britain and France. The United States remained neutral, but in the summer of 1807, there were British and French ships off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, and Great Britain believed Royal Navy deserters could be on American ships. The crew of the British Leopard attacked and boarded the American warship, the USS Chesapeake, looking for those deserters. In the end, the unprepared Chesapeake was surrendered to the British by its commander, Captain James Barron, who faced court-martial. Stephen Decatur was a judge on the court-martial board that voted to relieve Barron of his command for five years, while Decatur was appointed to command the Chesapeake. Years later, when Barron sought reinstatement, Stephen Decatur openly criticized Barron's actions during his naval service and spoke out against his reinstatement. Barron blamed Decatur for his fall from grace, and a challenge was issued. Now, Decatur had taken part in a duel when he was a young officer, but no longer supported the practice that had cost too many lives, saying fighting duels under any circumstances could not raise the reputation of a man. But honor was everything to a man of Decatur's status. Tragically, this attempt to maintain honor and all of his ambitions, which included a potential run for president, led to Decatur's demise. The men met in a dueling field in a village in Maryland. Their seconds, who were meant to make every attempt to broker peace, agreed to terms that ensured this duel would happen and would be deadly. The seconds negotiated the men would be placed eight paces apart from each other instead of the standard ten. This was said to have been a compromise for Baron, who was nearsighted. The common practice of having their pistol by their sides or in the air and agreeing the men would be instructed to aim at each other before the count was set aside and increased the chance of bloodshed. Barron and Decatur met on the morning of March 22, 1820, and spoke before the duel. They were polite, calm. Barron told Decatur that if they had met in another world, he hoped they would be better friends. Decatur clarified that he was never Barron's enemy. Their seconds could have used this opportunity to encourage reconciliation, but they made no such attempt. At 9 o'clock, Stephen Decatur and James Barron stood eight paces apart, and at the count, both men fired. Both were shot, and the severely wounded men cleared the air, made peace. Decatur apologized for his careless words, and Barron forgave him. Decatur, experiencing excruciating pain and knowing death was near, forgave Barron and told him he was not at fault for his death. 
He was then transported to his home on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. He asked his wife Susan be kept upstairs so she would not have to see him in agony and dying on their sofa in the front parlor. Stephen Decatur died 10 hours later. James Barron survived and lived to the age of 83. As a shocked nation mourned a hero, Susan Decatur was left to mourn her husband. One paper wrote this of Susan. She finds herself widowed and desolate in her mansion, and strangers may soon inhabit where late this gallant spirit dwelt. Her husband's death left Susan heartbroken and in financial turmoil. She was forced to sell family possessions and rent out the family home. She moved to a smaller house in Georgetown and for the rest of her life was haunted by the death of her beloved husband and struggled financially. In 1831, she lobbied Congress for money she believed was owed her husband for his military service. This was met with criticism as Decatur's death inspired many communities to outlaw dueling and had further swayed public opinion against the practice. When Susan Decatur went to Congress in 1831, a newspaper published an article arguing against giving her money. She was denied and tried again a decade later in 1842. She was again met with backlash. The Boston Courier wrote, If the country owed Decatur a debt of gratitude up to the time he fell in a duel, that fall canceled the debt. He threw away a life of honor. Decatur's choice to accept the duel may have felt honorable, but it cost his family everything. A country had lost a hero, but the code of honor remained the defense of honor well until after the Civil War. In fact, many duels happened between officers during the war, especially among Confederate officers. Like the duel between Confederate generals John Marmaduke and Lucius Walker. Both were West Point grads and were in Arkansas during the war. In the summer of 1863, Marmaduke and Walker disagreed over military actions at Helena and Little Rock. Walker refused to carry out orders and operation plans, and in doing so, exposed Marmaduke and his men to federal forces. Marmaduke attempted to meet with Walker to discuss the issue, but Walker refused to leave his post. Marmaduke threatened his superiors that unless he was removed from Walker's cavalry, he would retire from action. When the transfer was granted, rumors spread that Marmaduke questioned Walker's courage. Walker began a letter exchange with Marmaduke about these rumors, but there would be no peaceful resolution. A challenge was extended by Walker's second and accepted by Marmaduke's. When word spread that the duel had been negotiated and the date set, the men were ordered to stay at their post, but Walker never received the order, and Marmaduke ignored it. Marmaduke and Walker met at a plantation outside of Little Rock on September 6, 1863. Walker brought a surgeon and Marmaduke an ambulance, which was allowed under the Code of Honor. 
The first shots were fired with no results. The men agreed to a second round in which Marmaduke hit his target and Walker was mortally wounded. To show he was a man of honor, he allowed Walker to use his ambulance. Walker died in Little Rock the next day. Marmaduke faced arrest because dueling had been prohibited in Arkansas since 1820. But his superiors agreed the best course of action would be to release Marmaduke to prevent infighting between troops. Marmaduke never faced charges, but later shared he felt a great weight of remorse over that duel. Remorse was one of the most common emotions men expressed after they participated in duels. Sergeant Prentice, Mississippi attorney and politician, fought a few duels and later shared his great remorse. He said his moral and religious upbringing contradicted the very custom, yet he had gone to the dueling field even after becoming a husband and father. In a letter to a friend, he wrote that after a duel, he did nothing but read the Bible and weep and pray saying, the possibility of leaving my own family unprotected or of killing a fellow being haunted me so that I could not sleep, and I tottered round in the daytime like a worn-out old man. By the end of the Civil War, the affair of honor began to decline. Americans had seen enough death and experienced enough heartache for a lifetime. There was less appeal in dying for chivalry's sake or for honor after the country lost nearly 620,000 people on the battlefield. Too many men had fought for a greater cause, and duels were increasingly viewed as a foolish undertaking. It was a challenge that led to severe injuries and the death of too many men who may have felt they held on to their honor as they passed from this life, but left behind many a heartbroken soul. Poet and statesman Richard Henry Wilde knew that pain all too well. His brother James was laid to rest in Savannah's Colonial Park Cemetery in 1815. We'll never know the nature of the offense that led to the duel on the north side of the Savannah River in South Carolina on January 16th. 1815. We only know that Lieutenant James Wilde and Captain Roswell Johnson were officers in the 8th U.S. Infantry, and upon the fourth exchange of fire, Lieutenant Wilde's life ended with a shot through the heart. The inscription on what's known as the Duelist Grave is nearly illegible today, but back in 1906, a newspaper published a transcript that reads, This humble stone records the piety, fraternal affection, and manly virtues of James Wilde Esquire, late district paymaster in the Army of the United States. He fell in a duel on the 16th of January, 1815, by the hand of a man who a short time ago would have been friendless but for him, and expired instantly in his 22nd year, dying as he had lived, with unshaken courage and unblemished reputation. By his untimely death, the prop of a mother's age is broken, 
the hope and consolation of sisters is destroyed, the pride of brothers humbled in the dust, and a whole family, happy until then, overwhelmed with affliction. Richard Wilde later said his brother James had served in the campaign against Seminoles, and when he returned home, the family had been moved by his descriptions of Florida's orange groves, lakes, and swamps. He referred to it as a sort of fairyland. Richard told James he would immortalize his adventures in a poem someday, but he never expected that it would be a memorial to his brother. The opening stanza of Wilde's poem, Summer Rose, reflects the pain of his loss, a pain felt by too many families in the South whose loved ones met on a field in an affair of honor. My life is like the summer rose that opens to the morning sky, but ere the shades of evening close is scattered on the ground to die. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. If you enjoy this independent podcast and want to hear more, you can help support what I'm creating when you join me on Patreon, where you get to hear bonus Southern Mystery shorts each month. I want to say a special thanks to those who have recently become patrons. Jennifer from Chester, Virginia. Joan from Schenectady, New York. Kendra from Lopez Island, Washington. Christy from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Lori from Arden, North Carolina. Marianne from Arlington, Virginia. And Richard from Pulaski, Virginia. Appreciate y'all so much. And it means the world that you're helping me create Southern Mysteries. You know, if you're new here and you want to support the show and catch up on bonus episodes, you can join today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. And remember, I'm always open to suggestions of stories to feature on the show. So if you have one, you can send it to me via social or email. The links are here in the show notes where you're listening, or you can check southernmysteries.com. Thanks for listening. There might be another star.